You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey y'all, welcome to the second part of our two-part episode on the Peasants' Revolt. To recap before we get into it, the Black Death caused changes in the labor market. The English crown reacted to this by passing laws to freeze wages at a pre-plague level. Some 25 years of discontent followed. Then, as a result of military expenditures and the Hundred Years' War, the English crown imposed a series of poll taxes to help fund the war effort. The crown did not get as much as they expected out of these taxes, probably because peasants aren't known for having tons of cash on hand, and sold the right to collect the remainder of the taxes to a fellow by the name of John Legg. Legg's aggressive, unpleasant, invasive, and kind of molesty Methods of tax collection were the match that set fire to the whole situation, and a revolt began. Peasant resistance against the tax collectors and the subsequent legal inquests about said resistance led to escalating violence and property destruction. The peasants, understandably sick of being mistreated by the crown, though nevertheless still loyal to the crown as a concept and the king as a person, became convinced that the king's council, his uncle John of Gaunt in particular, were misleading and lying to the king, and generally ruining the country and all of their lives. They managed to get organized surprisingly quickly and in surprisingly large numbers, and among other things broke a revolutionary preacher named John Ball out of prison. At the point where we left off, Revolutionaries from Essex and Kent have joined forces, and a man named Watt Tyler has emerged as their leader. At this point, King Richard II decides he needs to intervene personally. He relocates from Windsor to the Tower of London, where he shuts himself up with his inner circle, and sends a messenger to the rebels on June 11th. Quote, when the king heard of their doings, he sent messengers to them, asking why they were acting in this way, and for what reason they had risen in his land. And they sent replies by the said messengers that they had risen to save him, and to destroy traitors to him and the kingdom. The king sent messengers to them again, asking them to stop their activity out of reverence to him until he could speak with them, when he would make reasonable amends according to their will for the injustices done to them. Huh. I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, this is also a thing, is that the king is... I'm not sure what's going through his head. We'll see this kind of strategy develop, but... Like, is he pressured into this? Does he not really care? Does he actually care? Like, how do we know? I don't think we can. Yeah, no, we, we really can't. Wow, alright. So they agree to meet at Blackheath, which has since been absorbed by London, but which was, quote, three leagues from London, unquote, at the time. 
There's a little confusion as to whether this was the next day or the day after. Dobson argues, taking travel time into consideration, that June 13th is the more likely date. Makes sense. Doesn't really matter for our purposes. No. So the king heads out on a boat, along the Thames, I assume, along with members of his council. They reach Greenwich, which is near Blackheath, but two members of the council advise him to stop there. These councillors, incidentally, are Simon of Sudbury, who is both Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of England, and Sir Robert Hales, the treasurer mentioned earlier. These are both people the rebels specifically dislike. And I quote, But there the said chancellor and treasurer informed the king that it would be too great folly to go to the commons, for they were unreasonable men and did not know how to behave. Right, sure, of course. (laughs) Yeah. As the king, on the persuasion of the chancellor and treasurer, would not come to them, the commons of Kent sent him a petition asking him to grant them the heads of the Duke of Lancaster and fifteen other lords, of whom fourteen were lords present with him in the Tower of London. Whoo, that escalated fast! Well, again, they think he's on their side. They're like, hey, we know these guys are traitors. That's true. We just want permission to kill them. Wow. These were their names. We get a hit list. It, It doesn't give us all 16. But we get a hit list. Yeah, there's a list. I'm here for it. Let's go. These were their names. Master Simon of Sudbury, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of England. Sir Robert Hales, Prior of the Hospital of St. John, Treasurer of England. Sir John Fordham, Clerk of the Privy Seal and Bishop-elect of Durham. Sir Robert Belknap, Chief Justice of the Common Bench. Sir Ralph Ferreras, Sir Robert Pleasington, Chief Baron of the Exchequer. John Legg, Sergeant-at-Arms of Our Lord the King. Thomas de Bampton already mentioned, and others. And others. Yeah, you don't give them all. Foreshadowing, of those names mentioned, three definitely survive. Wow. We already mentioned John of Gaunt being around after the revolt. He's up on the Scottish border at the time, and so he gets Uh to kind of dodge. I didn't go into what he was doing, but I did see mention that he ended up claiming asylum from the King of Scotland at the time, and that's why he lived. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. All right. Of the remainder, three are definitely killed, and the fates of the remaining three are unknown. Future Mac here. That may be an overstatement. Their fates are unknown to me. I tried to look them up, and I couldn't find anything. But it's possible that someone somewhere has figured this out. Wow. Anyway. The king does not agree to execute these people, and the rebels send another messenger, asking that he please meet with them properly. Yeah, because he said that he said that he would. Yeah, the king wants to do this, but the chancellor and the treasurer argue against it, probably because they're the two names on the hit list right under John of Gaunt. Wow. This conversation is interrupted when a knight comes rushing up to them. Oh no. The anonymous chronicle does not name him, but Foissat says he is called Sir John Newton. Okay. The knight says he heard from a servant who overheard from some rebels who were talking to each other that they actually planned to capture the king. Oh, f*** off. Yeah, no. The king decides this sounds plausible, though, so they all flee back to the Tower of London, and the rebels decide, all right, we're going to London. Makes sense. I mean, remember that this kid is, like, 14. Right. Like... Let's just say he took this in goodwill, and he was like, okay, well, like, they want to kill you guys, but, like... It's probably a misunderstanding. And then some knight comes up and they're like, he actually wants to kill you, my lord. Uh, no, I'm out. 
Yeah. Like, it makes sense. This poor kid. Right. But also, like, just meet with them, my dude. Yeah. Take an armed escort if you have to. Yeah. Like, if you just meet in good faith, this could have stopped here. Yeah, probably. Anyway, on the outskirts of London the next day, the rebels continued their destruction of property, but in a highly targeted manner. The timeline is shaky, but most accounts seem to agree that these things happen at some point. The rebels invade a manor that belongs to Simon of Sudbury in order to burn registry books and chancery rolls, destroying legal records being an old standby for a proper insurrection. Yes. Uh, Probably also debt. Yeah. Like, those could be debt documents, and these people probably can't read, so they're probably like, well, these look official, I'm gonna burn that. It is entirely standard to burn legal records because that's the only way debt is recorded. And also, if you're a peasant, your obligations towards your lord are based on tradition that is occasionally written down. And if those records are burned, you can renegotiate. Yep. Because he, there's no proof that it was the way it was. Yep. So yeah, they, they want to burn these records. They start breaking into other prisons and releasing the inmates. Knighton claims they, quote, compel, unquote, the inmates to join the revolt. But come on. Like, put yourself yeah, in their it's position. Not, it's not that hard of a sell. Yeah. How much compulsion is actually going to be needed for you to get on board with the guys who just broke you out of prison and told you, Hey, we all know that the system that put you in there is corrupt and we're on our way to burn it to the fucking ground. Do you want to come? You're gonna say yes. Yeah, I mean, at that point, let's, let's go. Damn. The Eulogium Historiarum says they, quote, offer the iron chains of Newgate in the Church of the Friars Minor, a phrase which I don't fully understand, but which I think has a swagful ring to it. It do. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. It sounds like they're taking, like, the restraints from, like, the prison or, like, the chains on the prison gates and, like, offering them on an altar or something, which I think sounds badass. But, like, I'm not entirely sure that's what it means. That's just how I read it. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. Listeners, if you know, or figure it out, or whatever, let us know, because that's, that's pretty dope. Newgate is another prison, so we do have that context. They also burn a manor belonging to the treasurer. And Walsingham includes a detail that we need to touch on. Quote, Near a certain estate of the Master of St. John's Hospital, that's the treasurer, he has multiple titles, called Highbury, they saw there a multitude of 20,000 rustics and common people who had set fire to its buildings, already burning inextinguishably, which Google Docs does not think is a word, and were striving (laughs) to pull down with their tools all that the fire could not destroy. I myself, Walsingham is in like a group of clerics from St. Albans who are going into London to like... Huddle up. Yeah. I myself saw men summoned and forced before one of the leaders of the rebels called John Straw, who made them promise that they would adhere to King Richard and the commons. This is the third major leader of the revolt, or at least the London portion. There are other leaders in other parts of the country. He's more commonly known as Jack Straw. So it's time for another biographical interlude as follows. Jack Straw is probably an alias. Knighton says it's an alias for Watt Tyler, but everyone else agrees this is a separate person. Okay, alright, interesting. End of biographical interlude. That's intriguing either way. Yeah. Like, who's this guy? Mm -hmm. We don't know. We'll never know. 
Yeah. But he's there. He's doing his thing. The rebels then enter into London proper, crossing London Bridge to exactly zero resistance. Wow. The sources disagree on how this happened. The Anonymous Chronicle says they threatened violence and the people guarding the bridge just gave in. Walsingham gives this account, quote, The mayor and aldermen of London, fearing for the city, ordered the gates to be closed immediately. But the common people of the city, and especially the poor, favored the rustics, and stopped the mayor from closing the gates by using force and threatening to kill him if he tried to do so. And so throughout the following night, the eve of Corpus Christi, the rascals enjoyed free access to and exit from the city. They had persuaded the community of Londoners and the rest of the kingdom to favor them by asserting that their intention was merely to discover the traitors of the kingdom after which they would disband. And they gained greater credence by saying that they would not plunder at all, but buy everything at a fair price, and that if they discovered anyone guilty of theft, they would execute him because they detested robbers. I mean, that kind of checks out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. They come in, and everyone's like, yeah. And then once they're in, they're like, by the way, you know, we're not... We're not after you guys. Yeah, we're not out for you guys. We need supplies, but we'll pay for them. Well, that's more than the frickin' redcoats would say, but all right. Foissat has the rebels make threats at the gate, to which the people of London respond with class solidarity. I quote. <laughs> okay. There were many commons within the city of their accord, and so they drew together and said... Why do we not let these good people enter into the city? They are our fellows, and that that they do is for us. So therewith That's the gates true. were opened. Yeah. Okay, let's go. One more. Uh, in the Eulogium Historiarum, the common people of London actually get a jump on the whole thing. Not only do they get started at the Savoy, which we'll cover in a moment before the rebels even arrive, we have this moment right after the king flees from the Blackheath meeting. Quote, the London Burgesses sent men from the city to inform the band of rebels that they would stop them from disturbing the king in his apartments and to declare that the city was armed against them. In fact, the said messengers said, Come to us. We have been sent to you. Wow. That's pretty cool. I find that one the funniest because I love the idea of the wealthy Londoners sending a threatening stay away message only for the messengers to literally invite the rebels in because f*** those rich assholes. Yeah, for real. I'm impressed. All right. But regardless of how it happened, I think it's pretty believable that the London poor recognized the rebels as being more on their side than the aristocracy was and just let them in. Yeah, most likely. So, I mentioned this briefly. Now we're going to talk about it. Once in London, one of the most famous actions the rebels take is the burning of the Savoy, which was a palace belonging to John of Gaunt. The Eulogium Historiarum and the Anonymal Chronicle claim the poor of London started on this before the rebels even enter the city. Wow. The Anonymal Chronicle has the rebels take a detour to other targets before joining in, but the other sources disagree and say like, no, this was just the first thing they did when they got there. So right. I'm putting it here. I mean, they probably did other looting and things as they went. Right, and they may have split up. Right. All right. Anyway, they got there. So here's Walsingham's account. Among other things, they assembled and set out to the Savoy, the residence of the Duke of Lancaster, unrivaled in splendor and nobility within England. The palace, not the Duke. It's a very fancy palace. Mm-hmm. Which they then set to the flames. This was done in defiance of the Duke, whom they called a traitor, and to inspire fear among other traitors. 
This news so delighted the common people of London that, thinking it particularly shameful for others to harm and injure the Duke before themselves, they immediately <laughs> ran there like madmen, set fire to the palace on all sides, and so destroyed it in order that the whole community of the realm should know that they were not motivated by avarice, they made a proclamation that no one should retain for their own use any object found there under penalty of execution. Instead, they broke the gold and silver vessels, of which there were many at the Savoy, into pieces with their axes and threw them into the Thames or the sewers. See, this, this makes sense to me. This is saying like, hey... We are not here doing this for any reason. We're not doing this for our own gain. We have an objective we are trying to fill. Yes, the sources all agree. The rebels are scrupulously clear that we are not looting the Savoy. We are destroying it. Amazing. We're not here because we're envious of your wealth. We don't want to be wealthy. We want you to not have it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so... To continue the quote, They tore the golden cloths and silk hangings to pieces and crushed them underfoot. They ground up rings and other jewels inlaid with precious stones in small mortars so they could never be used again. And so it was done. Knighton includes the following anecdote to really drive that point home. Quote, One of the criminals chose a fine piece of silver and hid it in his lap. When his fellows saw him carrying it, they threw him, together with his prize, into the fire, saying that they were lovers of truth and justice, not robbers and thieves. Again, checks out. Yeah. So, you know, that might be a little questionable, but I really like <laughs> that the rebels are making their intent plain. Because there's mm -hmm. a reaction we still see today whenever oppressed peoples demand reform. People say stuff yeah. like, oh, they just want to swap places, so they're on top and we're on bottom. Mm -hmm. But the rebels here are making sure people understand, you know, no, we don't think you should have this wealth. We don't want it. We right. think you should not have it. We think that should be done. Yep. Or at least quit doing this to us at the, yeah. at the very base minimum is like, hey, stop it. Right. Yeah. Even if you don't assign them any like higher plan, they're at the very least like, no, just fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the burning of the Savoy. Next up is the temple, which is not a literal temple, but a name for a complex of legal buildings. Yep. It is incidentally said that Chaucer studied law there about 15 years before these events. I keep bringing him up because Chaucer lives in London at this time. There is no evidence that he was actually there because he did travel. So like mm -hmm. he might have been out of town, but he also might have been here. So his like personal history is very bound up in all this. Right. What a guy. Like. I wonder how we felt about missing it if he did. Relief, I would assume. Remember, he's John of Gaunt's Probably. buddy already. Well, right. But also, like, that would be a lot of first-hand knowledge that you could put into your work. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. All right. Anyway. All right. So, the temple. Legal buildings. Remember that the rebels hate lawyers and very much want to destroy legal documents. This is pretty much de rigueur. Mm -hmm. They trash some buildings, but they aren't as thorough about it as they were with the Savoy because the temple still exists. They're more focused on finding and burning documents and secondarily on carrying out that kill all the lawyers plan. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Can't forget about that one. I'm going to quote Knighton again. The rebels returned to the new temple, which belonged to the prior of Clerkenwell and threw down many houses there. 
They broke the chests they found in the church or the apprentices' rooms, and also tore up with their axes all the church books, charters, and records discovered in the apprentices' chests and then burnt them. The insurgents also overthrew the houses of the jurors in the city. Even when old and senile, the rebels climbed with extraordinary agility, as though they were rats or carried aloft by some spirit. This is certainly credible, for the malign spirit which they followed and served undoubtedly directed their steps. Oh, for sure. The devil led them. Yeah. And he finishes up by saying, The rebels killed at once all the jurors of the city and apprentices-in-law they found. Yes. In addition to lawyers, you may remember the rebels have a specific hit list, and they're doing their best to hunt down the people on it. Honestly, I'm impressed. Yeah. Like, I had read about this in history, but I never, like, got the details about it. And this, I'm really, really impressed. Right? It's like, a obviously, fascinating this is thing. A ridiculous amount of carnage and violence. But to do this basically, like, on a whim, give or take. Yeah, like, there was not a lot of Without modern planning. social media. Like, damn. Yeah, they're doing a good job. Yeah. All right. All right, so they're hunting people down. The Anonymous Chronicle names only Roger Leggett, an infamous assizer of the day, among the executed. Mm. Knighton, Foissat, and the letter book add Richard Lyons. Neither of these two were on the Blackheath list, but the Chronicle did only specify nine of the 16 names, so they might have been. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Lyons is worth noting for a moment. I was going to say, I think I've heard of him. You might have. He had built up a massive fortune through widespread financial fraud, and the Parliament of 1376 had convicted him for his crimes. But nothing had been done. Mm, something had been done. All right. Knighton says they, quote, sentenced him to perpetual imprisonment with a daily stipend of 12 pence. Oh, this guy. Granted to him by the king's grace. So yeah, he's getting daily the full amount that the peasants were asked to each pay at the end of the last poll tax. So I feel like wow. they probably don't appreciate how their money's being spent. No, I wouldn't be either. This is just like, hey, you're a criminal and you stole all this money and we're going to put you in prison. But like, you are like wealthy, so it can't be a bad prison. So you get a, you get daily stipend for, and it's a large amount. That's a big number. Yeah, he's, he's basically a white-collar criminal being put under house arrest and still getting a salary. Yeah. Anyway, that perpetual imprisonment lasted less than a year before John of Gaunt pardoned him. So he was back in mm. business for a few years before the rebels beheaded him. See, that's, that's more like what I expected. Yeah. Also worth noting, another Chaucer connection. Lyons was a friend of Chaucer's father and was Chaucer's supervisor at his customs position for the two years before his conviction. What a swell guy. Yeah. Which is how Lyons was doing all that fraud. He was in charge of customs. He was in, yeah. Fwasa, incidentally, claims that Lyons was killed because he was Watt Tyler's former employer and used to beat him. But no one else backs this up, so it's probably Fwasa's own embellishment, which is something he definitely does. Makes sense. Moving on from Lyons. Yeah. At this point, the rebels reach the Tower of London, where the king and his council are still hiding. How exactly this goes varies source to source, so I'm going to give a few different versions. Okay, I'm excited. We're, we're coming to the crux of it. According to the Anonymous Chronicle, a large group of them gather outside the tower and shout at the king. I quote, He, the king, had it proclaimed to them that they should all go peaceably to their home, and he would pardon them all their different offenses, 
but all cried with one voice that they would not go before they had captured the traitors within the tower and obtained charters to free them from all manner of serfdom and certain other points which they wished to demand. This makes sense to me. Like, as things get worse, the demands increase, and you sort of reach a point, like, you gotta commit. Yeah, and it's entirely possible that, like, ending serfdom was always part of it. Because you remember, that was one of John Ball's things, and he's kind of in charge. That's right, yep. So it it may have been that the Blackheath negotiations only mentioned these traitors because they're like, okay, that's... That's step one. That's, like we're gonna Yeah, the only thing we could really address at that particular moment. We're gonna move on to the rest once we get him to come talk to us, which he didn't right. do. The king tells him he's gonna start writing up those charters right away, and the crowd outside calls bullshit and goes back to killing lawyers. Oof. They are correct, by the way. Of course. It's a matter of official record that the king has a bunch of manumission charters written to pacify the rebels. But on July 2nd, after the danger is passed, he sends out a proclamation saying they're all null and void. Wow. Foissat actually says he has them ripped up in front of the rebels at the end of the events in London. But either way, records show that later this year, Parliament supports his decision to annul the charters. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, they're fake, but he's doing it to like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do the thing, I'll do the thing, just go home, just go home, and I'll do the thing. Go home, yeah, I'm sure that's gonna go over well. Walsingham says the rebels show up and demand the king hand over the traitors, and he just kind of lets them in. Walsingham is as baffled by this account of events as I and I assume the listeners are, but it's the one he was told. I quote, All right. And so the king, being in a quandary, allowed the rebels to enter the tower and to search the most secret places there at their wicked will, like someone who could deny them nothing with safety. At the time, there were in the tower 600 soldiers, skilled in arms, strong and most expert, as well as 600 archers, all of whom, marvelously enough, were inclined to appear more like the dead than the living, for they were certainly dead to all memories of valiant military deeds and to the remembrance of previous (laughs) strife and glory. In short, when faced with the rustics, they lacked almost all the military audacity of Logria. Oof. Also, can I just say, like, of all derogatory terms, I kind of like rustics. Yeah. Like, rustics is kind of nice. Like, hmm. Yeah, it's fine. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I vibe. Anyway, in Walsingham's version, a contingent of the rebels just hang around the part of the tower where the king is, lounging on the nice furniture, trying to recruit the guards into the revolt, and apparently hitting on the queen mum, but... Damn. (laughs) Cheeky. Yeah, I mean, the the Chronicle just said they asked her to kiss them, but I'm I'm interpreting that as they were hitting on the Queen Mom. Yeah, yeah. Or or you know, also probably just a power trip, to be yeah, honest. Be. Like that's sort of what I expect. But Walsingham's more interested in the other group. Because right. most of the accounts agree that around this point the rebels got a hold of some of the members of the king's inner circle they had identified as traitors. Their hit list again. Yes. Here. They are said to execute at this time, according to various sources, Simon of Sudbury, Archbishop and Chancellor, Sir Robert Hales, Treasurer, William of Appleton, a friar who's just part of John of Gaunt's inner circle. Like, he doesn't hold any position, he's just part of John of Gaunt's whole thing. Kind of a collateral. Yeah. John Legg, that tax collector from earlier, who definitely deserved Oh, they it. got him. Yeah, yeah. And Richard Summoner, probably a legal professional. Mm-hmm. So those are the three people from the Blackheath list that are definitely killed in the revolt, plus two bonus executions. 
Two bonus executions. Yeah. All right. Walsingham dwells on the death of the Archbishop in particular at extreme length and very dramatically. An excerpt. Oh, yeah. Words could not be heard among their horrible shrieks, but rather their throats sounded with the bleating of sheep, or to be more accurate, with the devilish voices of peacocks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, that, I didn't expect that, that one. The archbishop, as we have said, stood among the crowd, surrounded by thousands of ruffians, and saw many of their swords drawn about his head to threaten him with death. Anyway. I think they did more than threaten. Yeah. Well... It takes him, like, two pages to get from there to the actual death. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure, bud. So Walsingham gives the Archbishop a whole ass martyrdom, complete with a list of miracles he accomplished posthumously. This does not seem to have caught on, because Simon of Sudbury, as far as I can tell, was not canonized. In Knighton's version, the king agrees to arrange a meeting with the rebels at Mile End. And then while he's at that meeting, a different set of rebels breaks into the tower and does those executions we mentioned. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I see both as plausible. Yeah. Fwasa and the Polychronicon agree with this version. Fwasa claims Tyler, Ball, and Straw are all personally present for those executions in the tower. Yeah, of course he would. Yeah, and I quote from his, his version. Sorry, I just had an impulse to do a French accent, but I'm absolutely not going to do that. That would be a bad idea. I leave it to your decision. (laughs) Then the people began to depart, especially the commons of the villages, and went to the same place, i.e. Mile End. But not all went thither, for they were not all of one condition, for there were some that desired nothing but riches and the utter destruction of the noblemen, and to have London robbed and pillaged. That was the principal matter of the beginning, the which they well showed. For as soon as the tower gate opened, and that the king was issued out with- There's a long list of names of people who were accompanying the king that I'm skipping over. Boring. Yeah. Get to the murder! (laughs) Then Watt Tyler, Jack Straw, and John Ball, and more than 400 entered into the tower, and break up chamber after chamber, and at last found the Archbishop of Canterbury, called Simon, a valiant man and a wise, and Chief Chancellor of England, and a little before he had said mass before the king. These gluttons, I don't know why they're gluttons, took him and strake off his head, and also they beheaded the Lord of St. John's and a friar minor, master in medicine. That's William of Appleton pertaining to the Duke Ah. of Lancaster. They slew him in despite of his master, and a sergeant-at-arms called John Legg. And these four heads were set on four long spears, and they made them to be borne before them through the streets of London, and and at last set them a-high on London Bridge, as though they had been traitors to the king and the realm. Because they were to the peasants' eyes. Right, and that is what you do with traitors, is you put their heads on London Bridge. Fwasa also has this whole experience, give the queen mum the vapors or something, and she has to be carried to her own quarters by servants to recover. Like, she's just so scandalized that she swoons and the servants carry her away. I mean, it's very fair that she probably, if she was traumatized for sure, but like, did she faint? Who actually knows? But yeah, yeah, sure. She swooned. Also, for everyone hearing queen mum and thinking an old woman, remember Richard is 14, his mom's like 50. I checked, yeah. but I don't remember the exact age, but it's like early 50s. Her name is Joan of Kent, if anyone wants to look her up. Anyway, though, as we've just alluded to, there's a meeting at Mile End. Let's talk about that. Oh, boy. The Anonymal Chronicle has the king, in that bit where people were shouting at the tower, pitch the idea of a meeting at Mile End the next day, and then head there with his retinue in the morning. That retinue includes the queen mum in this version, so she gets to skip being scandalized. They have a meeting where Watt Tyler lists out his demands. 
But this disagrees with all the other sources, where Watt, Tyler, and King Richard only meet once at Smithfield, which is mm -hmm. later. So I'm going to assume this is misplaced. This is supposed to be part of the Smithfield version, and it's been moved earlier. Okay. I will quote it anyway, because it's one of the only times we get to hear what Watt Tyler actually wants. And Watt Tyler, their master and leader, prayed on behalf of the commons that the king would suffer them to take and deal with all the traitors against him and the law. The said Walter and the commons were carrying two banners as well as pennons and pennoncels while they made their petition to the king. The king granted that they should freely seize all who were traitors and could be proved to be such by process of law. Yeah, the process of law which we're, like, rebelling against in this rebellion. Right. That system of law. Right, this whole time the king's strategy seems to be just agree to everything they say until they go home and then it'll be back to normal. Seems like something he would do. Like, because he knows no matter what he says, like, he's just going to turn around and go, well, we're not doing that. But that. He, just needs to, he just needs to talk them into going home. So, like, he never argues with them. He's just like, yeah, sure. Oh, gross. All right. And they, the rebels, required that henceforth no man should be a serf, nor make homage or any type of service to any lord, but should give fourpence for an acre of land. Uh, what that means is they want forced labor abolished, but they're willing to continue to pay rent at a set value. Uh, they want wow. all the serfs to be converted into free tenants, basically. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but this sounds like how revolutionary a universal basic income would be. Yeah, it is, it is that us. same level of, like, drama. Yeah, like, it would upset the system dramatically. Yeah, because right now... The lords have free labor on their lands. Right. And the serfs hate doing that labor. It is considered a privilege to be able to pay your rent in cash instead. Because, mm -hmm. because of how agriculture works, the same time the lord is commanding you to labor on his land is the same time you need to be laboring on your land. Like, the harvest yep. happens at the same time. Yep. You can't really stagger them. And legally, you have to do the lord's land first. Yep. So it, it really screws up their own crops, basically. But it would really change the economy if everyone was able to just pay a cash rent and move on. Right. Which some people could do, but most people couldn't. It was one of those privileges that you had to get by special custom. Mm -hmm. They asked also that no one should serve any man except at his own will and by means of regular covenant. And at this time, the king had the commons arrayed in two lines, and had it proclaimed before them that he would confirm and grant that they should be free, and generally should have their will, and that they could go through all the realm of England and catch all traitors, and bring them to him in safety. That's not happening. Yeah. And then he would deal with them as the law demanded. Because of this grant, Watt Tyler and the commons took their way to the tower to seize the archbishop and the others while the king remained at Mile End. So, in that version, this is when the execution happens. Right. I kind of like the idea that the king's strategy of just say yes to everything and then take it back later includes, yes, you can go seize traitors, but like, legally, okay? We'll go through the pro- hold on, he's 14. But like, legally, okay? <laughs> we'll go through the proper channels. You guys trust oh. the system, right? Right? Oh. Like, that's oh. not the whole point of this thing? Oh my gosh. 10 out of 10, 14 year old. He should also have a French accent, but I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, that's fair. See, he doesn't speak English as his first language, Richard II. He's also, he's, they're still French. He's basically French, yeah. Walsingham kind of skips over Mile End. He mentions there are a bunch of rebels there at one point, but doesn't seem to think they're there for, like, a reason. 
However, he does include, after the executions at the Tower, the king successfully bribing the Essex contingent with phony charters. The bulk of them go home and leave only a few representatives to make sure those charters materialize, which might be what is supposed to be happening at Mile End in this version. Wow. Knighton has a neat little summary of the meeting at Mile End as follows. When they had arrived at the rendezvous, the commons complained to the king about their intolerable servitude and heavy oppressions, which they neither could nor would sustain any longer. The king, for the sake of peace and because of the circumstances at the time, granted the commons at their petition a charter under his great seal, declaring that all men in the realm of England should be free and of free condition. They and their heirs should be forever released from the yoke of servitude and villainage. This charter was quashed, annulled, and adjudged worthless by the king and magnates of the realm in the parliament held at Westminster after Michaelmas that year. So basically he's saying yes here. Yeah. Yeah, the whole time and he's saying yes. And then he's just yes. like, nah. Yeah, because he knows as soon as they leave, he can just change his mind. They're not going to get wow. organized again. Wow. Like, there's nothing even to say there. It's like, you granted these people so much hope and, like, just about changed our lives and then said, fuck you. Yeah. Shit, man. Like, spoiler alert, like, obviously this didn't go through and I knew it wouldn't, but it's still disheartening to hear in the right? first place. Oh, brutal. Frankly, there should be historic, more historical fiction about this event. I, I don't know of any, but I would read it. Can you imagine, like, a mini-series of these events? Especially for, like, Tyler and Watt and all these different people. Mm-hmm. Instant main characters, you've got an entire plot, you, you make it like a, you know, a, a tragedy where, like, maybe they they get something out of it, I don't know. You could do so much with it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> There's a lot here. Foissat more or less agrees with Knighton, although he does so at greater length and adds in speeches. This is something Foissat does throughout his, his oh, history. Course. Is he? It's only fun. He makes up speeches that he thinks the person he's talking about would say and just puts them in. Checks out. In his version, he specifies that the majority of the rebels were satisfied, but says that Tyler, Straw, and Ball were not. He claims that this is because, quote, All their intents, all their intents was to put this city to trouble, in such wise as to slay all the rich and honest persons, and to rob and pillage their houses. That might have been more German than French. I can't do accents. We'll say it's the German border of France. Yeah. Anyway, can we just acknowledge the whole rich and honest? Like, those two are together? Well, I assume that you have to say rich and honest persons because those are two entirely separate categories of person. Mm. Like, there's no overlap. We're, we're not conflating them at all. But yes, Foissa seems to think they're synonyms. <laughs> Damn. Tyler, Straw, and Ball have, according to Foissa, 30,000 rebels still with them after the main body leaves. I think some of these numbers are being exaggerated. Yeah. Well, they did have, what, 50,000 at some point? Yeah, I think that was also exaggerated. Probably, but I, I feel like we also underestimate how many people showed up to these things. I mean, in all of England, yeah, there are probably a few million peasants at this time. Like, you probably could get that together. But this is assembled, like, spur of the moment. It's really only covering yeah. part of the country. I mean, it's, it's elsewhere in the country, but those are other groups. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I have no it's hard idea to, It's hard these, to figure like, these numbers out. Yeah, whether these, like, five-digit numbers are accurate, no idea. 
The other sources likewise agree with Knighton, though the Eulogium Historiarum doesn't specify the meeting taking place at Mile End, and the letter book has the rebels only asking about killing traitors and not talking about freedom from serfdom. Unrealistic, but sure. Yeah. So after this meeting, the rebels, I'm sorry to say, cross a moral line. Like, I'm broadly on their side, but this next bit is just unnecessary, and I'm going to go ahead and say morally wrong. Unfortunately, the sources seem to agree it happened, so we can't get around that. Okay. At this point, they kill several Flemish people for no clear reason. (gasps) The numbers vary source to source, but it's at least a couple dozen. It's more or less glossed over in the sources, like usually it's just a sentence, but they all mention it. Or almost all. Some of them leave it out, but most of them do. Interesting. To explain what this is about, I'm going to turn to Rodney Hilton's Bondmen Made Free. I'm not going to quote because he discusses it for several pages, but I'll summarize. All right. At this point, there was a divide within the city of London between Flemish and English craftsmen, mostly in the textile industry. The Flemings were seen as having been granted privileges, powers, and money above what their English counterparts received, and there was a lot of tension between the groups as a result. To what extent this was rivalry between two groups of craftsmen, or antagonism towards the Flemish master weavers from their English employees, or just straight xenophobia is not clear. But Hmm. one explanation is that some of the London contingent within the rebels decided to use the general atmosphere of the revolt to settle the score. Hmm. That's the version that it's just like a group of London workers deciding to off their bosses while everything's in chaos. That's the version that it's in like the notes of of my version of the Canterbury Tales, for instance. Right. Hilton says this isn't really a fully satisfying explanation and it probably needs closer examination to properly understand what happened here. But that's probably the gist of it, is there's this rivalry and... While all this other stuff is going on, like, people just decide this is the best time to sort that out. Opportune moment. Of course, it is, as it is to say. Yeah. Now, I mentioned the Canterbury Tales a second ago, and I yes. want to elaborate on that. Okay. As we've mentioned, Chaucer has personal connections with a lot of what's going on in the revolt, and it's possible that he was in London at the time. However, the following is the only mention of, of the events in any of his surviving work. This is from the Canterbury Tales, specifically the Nun's Priest's Tale, which is the one with uh, Chanticleer the Rooster, if anyone's trying to remember. Mm. Certus, he, Jack Straw, and his Myony, nay made never shouts half so shrill, when that they would any Fleming kill, as this day was made upon the fox. Ooh. It's just a throwaway illusion, and it only refers to the Flemings rather than any of the other aspects of the revolt. Interesting. I kind of suspect that what's going on with Chaucer is this. The rebels' main concern is that the government is corrupt and mistreats them. Mm -hmm. But Chaucer is personally neck deep in that exact corruption. That's what he keeps coming up in this story. So naturally, he's not going to acknowledge any of that. So he's only going to mention this like bit with the Flemings. Right. Interesting. So that would be my guess. That makes sense. Or he could be like taking a poke at them. Like, you guys really, like, fucked your shot up, like, that sort of a thing. I wouldn't put that past him. That's interesting. Why only that, if it's such a big event? Right? Like, this was a huge deal. It directly affected him. But, like, he's like, nah. Yeah. All right. Okay, interesting. On the plus side, though, multiple sources say the rebels also kill Richard Emworth, the man who was in charge of the Marshall Sea Prison. 
Hard to say whether this was an ideological choice. The rebels broke open several prisons, as we mentioned, including Marshal C, so that would be consistent. But it's also possible that this was revenge by the former Marshal C inmates who had just been broken out and joined the rebels a couple days ago. Yeah. Either way, I'm gonna say the guy running a prison probably has it coming. Yeah, that one. That one's hard to really say one way or the other. Yikes. Anyway, the day after Mile End, there's another meeting at Smithfield. This time, all sources agree that Watt Tyler was acting as the Rebels' spokesman, and King Richard conversed with him personally. So we do get a face-to-face. Yeah, they have a face-to-face. Good. I mean, f***ing finally. But good. I want to take a moment to go over the demands presented before we talk about what happened. Alright. Because the Anonymous Chronicle gives a reasonably detailed list of, like, these are the Rebels' demands that were put forth in the meeting. Alright, let's go through it. I'm ready. Thereupon, the said Watt rehearsed the points which were to be demanded, and he asked that there should be no law except the law of Winchester. Modern historians, as far as I can see, do not agree on what the fuck that means. Yeah, fair enough. And that henceforward, there should be no outlawry in any process of law, and that no lord should have lordship in future, but it should be divided among all men, except for the king's own lordship. He also asked that the goods of Holy Church should not remain in the hands of the religious, nor of parsons and vicars and other churchmen, but that clergy already in possession should have a sufficient sustenance, and the rest of their goods should be divided among the people of the parish. And he demanded that there should be only one bishop in England and only one prelate, and all the lands and tenements of the possessioners should be taken from them and divided among the commons, only reserving for them a reasonable sustenance. And he demanded that there should be no more villains in England. That's villain with an E, meaning like a serf who lives in a village, not mustache twirling. No more villains in England, and no serfdom nor villainage, but that all men should be free and of one condition. Hmm. Yeah. Not too bad, all things considered. I think there's some things on that list that we still have not accomplished. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, a lot of this is only mentioned in the Anonymous Chronicle, so we can't say that like this was definitely the plan, but the Anonymous Chronicle mm-hmm. is also the one with the most detail about what they were demanding. So, they have credibility. Right. Hmm. To this, the king gave an easy answer, and said that Watt should have all that he could fairly grant, reserving only for himself the regality of his crown. And then he ordered him to go back to his own home without causing further delay. Why, why do I suddenly doubt this guy? Well, because this is what he's doing. Like, these people are coming up with, like, look, the, the country's a mess. The country's a disaster. We've got to fix it. We have these plans that we think are going to make everyone's life better. And the king's just like, look, if I say yes, will you just leave? Like, he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to have an actual negotiation. He just wants to uh-huh. say whatever he needs to say so they go home. I hate this, man. Oh, all right. Walsingham presents a less detailed version and, frankly, a much less convincing one. All the Chronicles are firmly anti-revolt, but Walsingham is much more vocal about it and genuinely seems to hate Tyler, like, almost personally. Right before this, he repeatedly calls Tyler arrogant and claims his plan was to kill the king and burn down all of London for shiggles. He also insists that Tyler was against the meeting at Smithfield ever happening because he wanted more time to trash the city. Honestly, I don't see that anywhere in these texts. Yeah, no, it doesn't fit. But I'm going to quote his version anyway. All right. Now, above all things, Tyler desired to obtain a commission for himself and his men to execute all lawyers, escators, and others who had been trained in the law or dealt in the law because of their office. 
He believed that once all those learned in the law had been killed, all things would henceforward be regulated by the decrees of the common people. There would be no more law at all, or if so, it would be determined by his own judgment. Indeed, he is said to have arrogantly declared on the day before these events, and with his hands placed on his lips... <laughs> that doesn't actually work. I think he means, like, cupping. Oh, that makes more sense. Okay. That within four days, all the laws of England would emanate from his own mouth. I mean, I highly doubt that account, but sure, buddy. That directly contradicts the fact that they are, in not only this source, but all the sources, still loyal to the king. Right. They may or may not want the rest of the aristocracy gone. Right, but... but they, they want King Richard to keep being king. He's the king. Mm -hmm. He's the king. By divine right. Like it or not. Yeah. In Walsingham, none of this is even presented to the king. The above is narrated to us. And then the actual meeting happens, and in that meeting, Tyler is inexplicably too concerned about etiquette to reach his point. And we'll, we'll get there. We'll read that bit in a, in a little while. Okay. Why? Why? We'll get there. Okay. It'll make sense when we get there. I hope so. Anyway, Knighton's version is different from the Anonymous Chronicle, but it's clearly still part of the same family of ideas. Knighton also records the rebels' demands, and they're not the same, but they're like... In the same area. Right. And I'll, I'll quote those. The rebels petitioned the king that all preserves of water, parks, and woods should be made common to all. Ooh, this is actually one of the peasants' demands in the 12 articles that we feature in Pentiment. And this was a real thing. The 12 articles were a real thing. And one of the biggest complaints there is like, hey, the church is forbidding us to like pick up sticks on like public forest property that's like technically owned by the church. So this goes on even into the 1500s. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that comes up a lot. But the idea is like let us pick up sticks to use as firewood if it's in like a state park, please. That would be nice or public land. It's been a while since I've read Robin Hood, but I seem to recall that something about hunting the lord's deer was also in that poaching yeah yeah poaching. and that's that's they're all along the same lines if someone's like no all the deer in this forest are mine and like, but it's the it's the whole forest you guy yeah yeah come on you know we also need to eat yep checks out so that throughout the kingdom the poor as well as the rich should be free to take game in water fish ponds woods and forests mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. as to hunt hares in the fields and to do these and many other things without impediment makes sense Alright, so the Polychronicon gets Tyler's name wrong and really abbreviates the actual demands he's making, but does agree with the Anonymous Chronicle in broad strokes. I'm going to quote, On the arrival of the king and his company, which included the mayor of London, William Walworth, we'll come back to him, a discussion was held with John the Tyler, leader of the said multitude, concerning the remission of servitude. That's a lot, okay. Fwasa and the Eulogium Historiarum don't have Tyler make any demands. In those versions, Tyler is asking the king questions about those charters that he promised. Fwasa has him ask when they'll be ready, but the Eulogium Historiarum has him ask about the details of one that's already been prepared. Okay, makes sense. Finally, the letter book gives zero shits what the peasants want. It just says Tyler was arguing with the king and does not say about what. Sure. Screw you in particular, I guess. One could make the argument that in rough outline, these all agree except for Walsingham, who, who thinks Tyler wants to be a dictator for some reason. Yeah, I guess. Sure. 
Somebody's gotta. It's generally like, Tyler and the rebels are interested in the restrictions placed on the peasantry being lifted, possibly extending to full abolition of serfdom, and maybe the redistribution of wealth, although that last one really is in just the Anonymal Chronicle, so it might not have been a thing. That one doesn't check out to me as much. And they also want to kill traitors. Oh yeah, they all do want to do that. Yeah, that's that one's consistent. The king seems to be willing to do this stuff, and they already think he's on their side anyway, so they just need to hash out the details and get the charters written. Yeah, clearly that's that's all they that's all they need to do. Specifics are unclear, but everyone except Walsingham seems to be on board with this being about charters concerning the remission of servitude. Huh. Anyway, at this point, there is some kind of etiquette issue. Walsingham is alone in saying that Tyler is the one complaining about etiquette, so I'll go ahead and give you his version first. Alright. Why am I not surprised? So Sir John Newton came up to him on a war horse to hear what he proposed to say. Tyler grew indignant because the knight had approached him on horseback and not on foot, and furiously declared that it was more fitting to approach his presence on foot than by riding on a horse. Newton, still not completely forgetful of his old knightly honor, replied, As you are sitting on a horse, it is not insulting for me to approach you on a horse. (laughs) I mean, I guess he's right. Yeah, right. At this, the ruffian grew indignant, brought out his knife, which we commonly call a dagger. Apparently, this was a new term because multiple of the sources have the aside where they'll say knife and then go like, which is also called a dagger. It's a dagger. So apparently this was new. Ooh, exciting. Future Mac here. I checked into this a bit, and apparently it was a new word, or at least one that had suddenly gained more currency. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first occurrence of the word dagger is in 1375. So just six years before the events being described. They also list in their examples of this word's use... Geoffrey Chaucer, who used the term in the Pardoner's Tale, which was written shortly after these events. <laughs> and threatened to strike the knight and called him traitor. But the latter, hating that name, angrily called Tyler a liar and drew his knife too. The rascal could not bear to be so insulted before his rustics and prepared to rush on the knight. Before his rustics, I love that. So I think we can agree that that didn't happen. Right. But theoretically, he wasn't on horseback as he was rushing at the night. I think they're both still mounted. Oh, okay. So he was on horse. Okay, yeah. Well, a knife fight on horseback. Yeah, that sounds accurate. Yeah, if they got down, it's not mentioned. Huh. Let's look in the other versions. The Anonymal Chronicle has Tyler drink and or rinse his mouth in a way that's seen as disrespectful. And I quote, Presently, Watt Tyler, in the presence of the king, sent for a jug of water to rinse his mouth, because of the great heat that he felt. And as soon as the water was brought, he rinsed his mouth out in a very rude and villainous manner before the king, and then he made them bring him a jug of ale, and drank a great draught, and then, in the presence of the king, climbed on his horse again. I I mean... That I can kind of understand. Like, there's certain things you gotta do in front of the king. Like, you can't just drink a bunch of water and spit it on the ground. Or, like, you know, whatever. Like, what, are you supposed to sip it? Little sips? With the pinky out. Ah. Weird. 
In this version, at this point, one of the king's servants shouts an insult at Tyler. Tyler does a come over here and say that to my face. And it looks like things are about to escalate, just like it did in the other version, but we're going to come back to that. Okay. Because we're, we're focusing on the inciting incident right now. Yes. In Knighton's version, Tyler is making everyone nervous by fidgeting with his knife. The knife keeps showing up, so that might be real. Yeah, yeah. And I quote... Tyler stayed close to the king and spoke on behalf of the other rebels. He had drawn his knife, commonly called a dagger. <laughs> oh, I love they're so, they're so excited to use this new word. And kept throwing it from hand to hand like a boy playing a game. It was believed that he would take the opportunity to stab the king suddenly if the latter refused what he demanded. Those who stood near the king certainly feared what would happen. I mean, that seems like a reasonable fear, even if this guy was just fidgeting. Yeah, like, I could see why this would make people nervous. Yeah, I get it. Fwasa keeps the knife, but in his version, it isn't Tyler's. It belongs to a squire who's there with the king, and Tyler inexplicably decides to take it, then ask for the squire's sword, too, and things escalate from there. Weird. It's long with a lot of made-up speeches, so I'm not going to quote that version. Fair enough. In the Polychronicon, the problem seems to be Tyler's general vibe. Quote, Oh no. This impious leader, while they talked at length on the subject of the liberty of rustics, did not show due honor to his royal majesty. Rather, he addressed the most audacious words to the king's person, with his head covered, and with a threatening expression. He's a peasant! Yeah, he doesn't know courtly manners. He's not gonna know this shit. He has not been brought up in this manner. I don't even know what to say. Like, shame on y'all. This is sad. You're assuming that they have any intent or desire to negotiate in good faith. Like, obviously, they're just going to trash him for whatever. I mean, yeah. Damn. These f***os. Right? I, I hate them all. This is gross. So the Eulogium Historiarum keeps the issue of the covered head, but the mayor confronts Tyler over it. Sure. All the sources agree the mayor of London is there with the king. Okay, all right. Meanwhile, the king arrived at Smithfield, where he was approached by Walter the Tyler, who failed to uncover his head. Tyler said he wished to amend the Charter of Liberty, which the king had handed him. The mayor of London said to him, Why are you speaking to the king in that way? Beseech him properly and take off your cap. Tyler replied, You are a traitor. Okay, that is so cool, though. Like, can you imagine seeing that in film? Like, just the idea that this guy is so worried about how you're addressing the king and, like, this little itty-bitty thing, like, take off your hat. And the guy's like, you're a traitor. Like, the, the magnitude of their attitudes and what they're worried about is so different. That is yeah. so cool. Okay, someone definitely needs to do historical fiction of this. I'm going to look for it later. Yeah, that'd be dope. If I were a better writer, I would write it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Incidentally, in that version, they aren't at Smithfield for an actual meeting. After the executions at the tower, the king bluffs and has it proclaimed throughout the city that John of Gaunt is advancing with an army of 20,000 Scots. Because remember, he's up on the border. Oh, yeah. And everyone needs to gather at Smithfield in order to defend the city. It's just a gambit to lead them away from the tower. Yeah. That checks out. That seems like something he would do. But it is only in that version. Okay. So who knows? Sure, sure. And as mentioned, the letter book just says they were arguing. Okay. Regardless of what it was that prompted it, 
almost every source agrees that at this point, the mayor of London tries to arrest Tyler. Tyler resists, and the mayor, along with the king's servants, stab and or beat him to death. Oh my gosh. The only version I'm going to quote this time is the letter book, which disagrees with the others by skipping the whole part where they had an excuse. Quote, on this day, God sent remedy for the same in his own gracious aid by the hand of the most renowned man, Sir William Walworth, the then mayor, who in Smithfield, in the presence of our lord the king and those standing by him, lords, knights, esquires, and citizens on horseback, on the one side, and the whole of this infuriated rout on the other, most manfully by himself rushed upon the captain of the said multitude, Walter Tyler by name, and as he was altercating with the king and the nobles, first wounded him in the neck with his sword, and then hurled him from his horse, mortally pierced in the breast. Wow. Yeah, so taking your hat off is an offense to the king, but not fucking murdering a man? Well, he's a peasant. In cold blood, right in front? Disgusting. He's a rebel. They're not on the same side. It's allowed. It's allowed. I hate that. I hate all of this. This makes me so mad. Right? So mad. Alright. The Anonymal Chronicle actually says Tyler was brought to a hospital and then subsequently dragged out of said hospital and killed, but that version actually amplifies a problem that a number of these accounts have. Ah. See, in most accounts, after the mayor arrests slash attacks Tyler, there's <laughs> almost a violent reaction from the rebels. Almost. But then the king goes out in between the two groups and goes like, hey, you wouldn't attack your- hey, you wouldn't attack your king, right? You're loyal to the king, aren't you? I'm for you guys. <laughs> Fuck this guy. And you know, maybe they didn't vote for him, but they do also still inexplicably think the king is on their side, so they lower their weapons. And then there's a long pause where they just all kind of stand there. Stare at each other, yeah. Not doing anything. What else are you going to do? For like hours. While Mayor Walworth goes running here and there about the city, gathering up an armed force, and in the Anonymous Chronicle, also seeking out Watt Tyler in the hospital. Right, of course. Uh, that is what happens next, by the way. A bunch of knights show up leading their troops and force the rebels surrender. In most versions, like I said, Walworth rounds them up after killing Tyler. In right. Knighton, they just kind of show up, and I quote... As they gathered there, behold, a multitude of armed men arrived from the city, led by Lord Robert Knowles and other knights. They surrounded the wretched band of rebels in the field, now like deserted sheep without their shepherd. Then the king, pious in all things, was moved by mercy and did not have the wretches killed. Sparing this foolish mob, he ordered each man to return to his own home. But many suffered death after the king had departed. Yeah, because I expect... The guys after that just thought it was a f***ing free-for-all. Yeah. Wow. In the Eulogium Historiarum, we get a version that I think makes a lot more sense. While everyone is on their way to Smithfield, Mayor Walworth sends out an order for people to arm themselves and follow Sir Robert Knowles. This one tracks, actually, because it allows Walworth to both attack Tyler and arrange the arrival of the knights if he'd set it up ahead of time. That makes sense. It does, however, make the events at Smithfield look much sketchier if Walworth planned it beforehand. But that would also explain the inconsistency in the account of why he tried to arrest Tyler. If we think about it this way, where the plan was always for the meeting at Smithfield to end in violence, 
the contradictions start making sense. Like, maybe that's, that's why none of the sources can agree on why they killed Tyler. They did it because it was always the plan to kill the rebel leader. And then later they thought it might be good PR to try and blame him for it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes yeah, so a lot of sense. That's my theory. Mm. It's like medieval CSI in here. <laughs> You've done so much work, like, putting these pieces together. Thank you. Holy shit. Okay. All right. So, a little bit more. That's how the London segment of the Peasants' Revolt ends. Those knights showing up and driving off the remainder and or just killing them. Whew. Let's wrap up with a quick where are they now. Okay. John Ball and Jack Straw were captured and executed. Ball is said to have had an actual trial after which he was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Oh, brutal, brutal. Mayor Walworth was knighted pretty much on the spot after killing Tyler. Richard II had a turbulent reign, angered a lot of people, and is not fondly remembered by history. In 1399, he was deposed by John of Gaunt's son, who became Henry IV. And incidentally, Henry IV was the first English king in over 300 years to speak English as his native language. Wow. John of Gaunt never did try to take over the throne for himself because he had his own stuff going on. But as I mentioned, he did try and fail to set himself up as King of Castile at one point. That's right. The rebels were violently suppressed and serfdom would continue in England for another couple centuries. Oh my gosh. One last thought before we call this episode over. John Ball's body may be a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. It do. And that's what I have. Oh my gosh. What an epic. Wow. I don't even know where to like begin with that. Right? There's so much there. There's so much there. Wow. Okay. Like, what are we doing? Are we, are we doing our segments? Future Mac here. We do, in the remainder of the episode, do some of our normal segments where we talk about borrowing ideas and terminology for use in storytelling, game design, D&D campaigns, that sort of thing. However, if you find that to be disrespectful when we're talking about historical figures, especially regarding such tragic events, rather than talking about fiction as we usually do, I apologize. And this is probably a good time to go listen to something else, because that's what's coming up next. I feel like we can skip most of them, because this isn't fiction. Right. I do think there's a lot adaptable here, though. Yeah. What say you? Best dialogue is like, oh my gosh, take your hat off before the king. You're a traitor. Best yeah, dialogue. Very good. Best dialogue. Not even a fiction, like it's probably a fiction, but like top notch, top notch. Yeah, I'd I'd give it to John Ball for his Adam Delved and Eve Span, but I don't think he came up with that. I think he's quoting someone. Yeah, that checks out. Because I think that was just like a proverb that was floating around up at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. What can we adapt to a D&D game here? First off, the whole revolt, I think, is very compelling. Yeah, this is another thing that you could turn into a campaign. I think this would be a great campaign. Like, not even an adventure, but like the entire setting for the most part. Yeah. Or like build into it. Because I think 
you've got a lot of wonderful set pieces. And I say wonderful, like, in that same neutral way mm-hmm. of not like, oh, boy, we're going to kill a whole bunch of people. But in, like, the, this, these are great storytelling moments to use where you've got the beginning, you've got, like, this really lecherous guy who's doing shitty things, like, to women in this, you know, text in particular, but you can just have some some shitty guy show up at a village and start harassing people. You can have people who are doing things in the name of the law, but that are unjust. And you can just have your party wander around and see this thing, see that thing. And they're like, okay, we we keep fixing these instances of injustice, but it's getting bigger than that. And start putting those pieces together. I think that's really compelling. Yeah, I think the long history is important because, like, the revolt happened after 30 years of, like... This kind of extra oppression after the Black Death threatened to, like, make economic changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, John Legg, the, like, gross guy, and the, I forget his name, the one trying to get his surf back and asking for ridiculous amounts of money. Like, yep. that's just the last straw. That's just, like, yeah. the match. That's the, like, that's, everything's yeah, already exactly. set up. Yeah. I do think it would be very interesting to have an encounter, like, once this revolution or whatever revolution you have in your campaign is going on, an act of injustice in terms of an unjust random killing, like the Flemish folks, where it's not, and again, this is through the realm of history, so I'm going to spin this narratively. I'm not saying that this was a, a different group who are not the revolutionaries, but... Yeah, because it's not clear. We don't know one It's not clear. It's not clear. That is, that's the theory I most often hear, but no one's saying it's correct. Right. So for the sake of this narrative set piece, let's just say that it's an unaffiliated group who take this moment of opportunity and try and, for instance, sabotage. That could be really interesting. Or what if it's the party trying to chase down one of their old, like, enemies, and they're the ones who do this killing in the midst of a political upheaval, and then the leaders of that revolution are like, you just ruined this for us. You know, that could be really interesting. I think there's a lot of ways to set that one up as well. Yeah, and I think there, there's a lot to do with that in terms of world building, because historically, these kind of divisions often based on xenophobia or something mm-hmm. are what keeps these kind of revolutions from succeeding or often even happening is yep the people in charge say like oh no it's not we're not the ones yeah hurting you it's these the guys are stealing your jobs it's not the billionaires for instance yeah it's it's the immigrants it's oh no no you're poor because of jewish money lenders yep or even just like as we saw in colonial America, yes, your interests do align, but do you really want to be on the same side as a black guy? Yep. Like, sometimes it's just straight racism. Hey, Future Mac here. Past Mac tried to cite what he was talking about with that last bit, but kept stumbling over his words, so I'm re-recording. Past Mac is thinking of the early chapters of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, where it's theorized with some reasonably convincing support that racism in colonial America was intentionally encouraged by the upper classes in order to keep the various downtrodden groups from uniting across the color line and having a successful revolt. Yeah, because if you can give that person a horrible sense of superiority just a little bit, then maybe that's enough. 
Maybe that's all you need yeah. to do. That's what the Flemings thing makes me think of, is like, these divisions are a part of the way that society is structured to keep this kind of thing from happening. Yeah. And that's that's why the idea of solidarity is such a big thing, is, is it's acknowledging that despite these divisions, we all have aligned interests. Yep. I may be drifting off topic, but I think it was worth saying. Oh, yeah. 100% worth saying. What else? What else can we use in a D&D campaign here? Let's see. Okay. I have a couple things, actually. All right. Let's go. First, a way to work the PCs into it. Assuming that you're not setting up with the intent of going like, okay, guys, we're going to do a peasants revolt campaign. <laughs> Roll up some peasants. Right. Like, if you're right. not doing that. A way to work this into an existing campaign or into non-peasant characters. Like I mentioned earlier, in other peasant revolts, it was a thing to press gang a knight or someone mm -hmm. who actually understood military tactics so that he could guide the revolutionaries in their fights. That's a perfect place to introduce the PCs. Yes, for sure. They're the ones who are being dragged in by these like desperate peasants who are like, we don't know how the battlefield works. Works. You guys and this, this could be willingly or not, too. Yeah, either way. Yeah. Especially if your players are like, we don't want to kill innocents. You guys are just peasants. Like, like, yeah, there's 50 of you here. There's 20 of you here in this crowd. But we don't want to kill you guys. Like, what, what are we? Uh? And also, maybe you're, we, we understand your cause? Question mark? Maybe? What What if we do? Hold on a second. What's going on? Very interesting things to play with there. Yeah. And the, another thing that may be kind of meta, but I like the idea of incorporating chronicles that disagree with each other about important events. Always. It has to be an event that the PCs actually care about, obviously. Yes. So that they'll be motivated to try and figure out what actually happened. And maybe that leads them to the next big plot point or something. Yes, I love that. Especially if they're doing research on this thing or the other, or if it's connected to something really big that happened in the past. And they hear, let's roll with this idea of, of the revolution. Like, oh no, like this charter that actually set this thing down is not accurate. Like, you guys could get that old abandoned castle if you if you help us destroy this charter because it's not accurate. And then you guys would have, you know, a cool headquarters and we can also keep going on our little revolution quest. Like there's tons of ways you can play with that and bring that in. Right. Or like one idea that you could use for like a non-revolutionary campaign. If the PCs are looking for a specific magic item or something, whatever the MacGuffin is. Mm-hmm. Let them find out who the last person to have it was and then give them like half a dozen contradicting Reports. accounts of, of what happened to that guy. Where'd he go? Like it was probably like in his old place or buried with him or maybe he gave it away to someone. But like we have to figure or out maybe he hid it on he this went. mountain shrine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's tons you could do with that. I like that. That's cool. All right. Anything else? I mean, you can pull any of these names. I think these names are really cool. Like just even for peasants, you know, like just grab a bunch of these names. Yeah, I was just thinking all the aliases from John Ball's letter. Very good. Good idea to use aliases mm -hmm. in like this kind of story. That's mm -hmm. definitely something you could run with. Or sneaking hidden messages inside like prayerful sermons or whatever. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. really cool, too. You can definitely pull that. Also... A prison break Ooh. adventure. Yep. 
you know, like a heist, except you're trying to break everyone out of this prison. Yes. Love it. Like, maybe because there's a specific person like John Ball that you want to get out, or maybe just because f*** prisons. Because mm-hmm. it seems like they did both in this. Yeah. Yep. Or, like, again, major NPC they need was incarcerated. Yep. Who knows? Plenty of options. All right. I, I also like the idea, and this would be mean. This would be mean to do to them. But, like, players often have to negotiate with, like, authority figures in some way. Uh-huh. You could use Richard's strategy of just agreeing to whatever. Oh. And then as soon as the PCs leave, he goes, well, we're not doing that. We're not doing any of that, you guys. See, but I do I do like that to play with player expectations. And then that way they get really mad. Oh, they would get so p- So mad. And then especially, especially if there's documentation that the king has, like that they get beforehand or something. That's like, the king's never going to do this. The king's never going to do this. Just so they know that you have this plan as a DM. Because that could be very difficult. That could feel like you as the DM are betraying the party and not the king betraying the party. So yeah. deal with that carefully. Like have a good report. Yeah, you should probably introduce beforehand like someone saying, this guy's not there's no way the king's going to yeah. agree with that. Like there's, there's, the king's not going to do it. No. Like give them that expectation so that when you have the king say like, yeah, I'll totally do it. And then they're like, what? Not do it. Like they're yeah. aware that that's just how you're playing the king rather than that's you being a Right, right. That one's important. Tricky. Hard to do. Okay. Anything else? I feel like there's probably so much more that we're missing, but we have a lot of big, nice set pieces here that you can that you yeah. can use and pull from. And there is more. Like I said, I'm just covering the events in London. The, let me... Like burning charters, forging charters. This is Dobson. For reference, listeners, like this is like a two or three inch thick book. It is 433 pages and it's all primary sources with like a, a little paragraph introducing each one. That is a lot. There's so much on this. You could mine this for so much material. It's almost like you could do a PhD on it. I'm sure someone has. <laughs> Many, probably. All right. The Tolkien Tally. I assume there's no Tolkien unless you thought of something. <sighs> Not really. The only thing I'm reminded of is the uprising that the Shire folk have against... Saruman at the very, very, very end of The Lord of the Rings, which I just like. It, it, it mirrors a lot of this in a lot of the same ways, just because the Shire folk are kind of peasanty sorts of folk. And they rise up in their own way and implement sheriffs and things like that. Hmm. That's in there. I don't know if he pulled directly from this, but it certainly, like, it, it resembles a peasant's revolt. And, like, I'm sure he was aware of it, so, like, oh, it's yeah. possible. Yeah, for sure. Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Vocabulary. Just any of the cool names. I don't think so, though. Oh, Trail Bastion. That's actually a good one. Ooh, remind me what that means. That's the special legal court that you send out to prosecute people who have committed serious felonies. That's right. That's right. I also really like the idea, and this this goes back to D&D a little bit, but I like the idea that um, the jurors are not... They're not chosen. You don't have jury duty. Like, this is all 100% just snitches, professional snitches. They're not your peers. Like, no. they're, they're a cross between, like, an informant and a PI. Like, yeah. their job is to snitch on their neighbors, basically. Yeah. And what a good way to set up a villain instantly in a campaign. Yeah. Really good way. But yeah, I think that's all I have. There's a lot. This is a thick, thick topic. 
street smarts. Oh, gosh. <sighs> Don't trust kings. Yeah, the king is not on your side. The that king is, is never on your side. King's never on your side, man. Also, how about this one? Don't tax the lowest, poorest percent of your population a ridiculous amount, especially compared to your nobility and the people who have a lot of money. Crazy idea. Crazy idea. It's almost like multiple revolutions have been based on that. Yeah, just leave people alone. Ah! Jeez. Okay. These guys barely have cash at all. Yeah. I don't know why he thought he was going to get anything out of them. Well, probably because he's so far removed from them. You know, he's just hearing from, like, his nobles, like, oh, yeah, I'm sure they're hoarding shit. It's like, no, they're not. Yeah. You know, like they, they probably had conversations like, when was the last time you saw an actual penny? Do we still have any left? Yeah, Or have we for just real. been trading eggs for stuff for yeah. years? Ugh. Will the king take an egg? Yeah, for real. Okay. Let's see. Um... I feel like, yeah, the the important takeaway is the king is not on your side. Don't trust the king. Don't trust the king. Yeah. I can't think of anything else to add other than like, you know. Solidarity. (laughs) Yeah, solidarity. Eat the rich. Yeah. Break people out of prisons. These are all good (laughs) lessons. I don't think they actually ate any rich, but like metaphorically. Metaphorically. Eat the metaphorical rich or metaphorically eat the rich? Metaphorically eat the rich. They are literally rich. They are literally rich, yes. Yeah, that covers a lot of it. I mean, you can also literally eat the rich, but that's not in this text. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's very good for anybody. You have to you have to be get very careful with how you cook them. Mm. All right. Best moment. It's hard to do a best moment because this is definitely a tragedy. This entire thing is a tragedy. I mean, my best moment is still the best dialogue, to be honest. Like, yeah, I just I just love it as a a a microcosm of the entire thing. That everybody else is worried about, like, oh, what are you doing? And, like, take your hat off and bow before the king. And you guys are wrecking our palaces. And that's not very cool, guys. Versus this guy who's like, you're a traitor. You're ruining our country. And I'm trying to get a good deal for all of us here and not kill you right out. But you don't want to deal with it. You're more worried about my fucking hat. You know? I just like yeah, it as a moment. Put that. that works very well. Yeah. Yeah, that's just what I see in that moment. That's my favorite moment in this whole thing. I feel like it sums up the the gist of what's going on. You know, I think it's the burning of the Savoy. Or yeah? at least the the description of them destroying the golden like treasures rather than taking them. Yes. I think that says a lot. Yeah. And like even the horrifying depiction of them like killing another guy because he tried to sneak something again so representative of what they're trying to get across here right it's just making it clear like no they're serious yeah yeah absolutely and i think that's really important not actually a segment should we do the court since these are not fictional i feel like that would be inappropriate these are real like dead people who lived and died and struggled and even if they're not real people like, the fictional names represent real people. That just feels weird to me. Yeah. And since it's not fiction, we can't rate it. Yeah. I mean, narratively speaking, 10 out of 10. Like, there's just so much. There's so much here. There's highs and lows and tragedy and joy. And But again, like, this is not one singular document. There's so much. Yeah. So, no ratings. A little bit weird one today. But thanks for bearing with us. But anyway... 
listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this epic, like, revolutionary quest, essentially. This yeah. journey, this adventure, this tragedy, all of these mixed emotions. Remember, have solidarity. Think about where your tax dollars go. Be aware and well-read citizens, I suppose. And yeah, this is a little bit of a sober note for this one. But also, like, let your players be fucking heroes in a revolutionary quest, because how fun is that? There's yeah. so much to pull from this one. So take all of that. Take take the highs and lows with you. You know, sit on this one, I guess. And uh, <laughs> if you have anything to add, we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget, we do have our Patreon and our Discord. Please do get involved. This is a bit of a, a weird one for us in honor of, you know, May Day and worker solidarity and all that good stuff. So if you liked it, let us know. We can do it again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Wrapping it up. See you next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Nay made never shout so half- Ugh, Sorry, I'm trying to like translate on the fly and it's not working. It's very hard Nay- in Middle English.